welcome to the Fidelity Podcast, a conversational show about the work of design. My co-host and friend John Rundle is here. Hello, John. Hey, how are you doing, Bill? Good, man. Hey, do you listen to music when you design or, or do you like Ooh. go into complete monk mode? I always, every time I do put music on, I like enjoy it. And then I, but I always like forget to put it on. <laughs> like yeah. I have, I have a HomePod <laughs> on my desk that like most days I realize like, oh, I never put music on today. But then the days that I actually intentionally do it, I'm like, why am I not doing this every day? Yeah. Yeah, I, I get into the exact same scenario. I don't know why what it is. Like I'm just like too focused or something. But yeah. uh, more often than not, what happens is because I forget, I'm like eighty percent of the time just designing in complete silence. Oh yeah, same. I forget all the time. But then I should do it more. Yeah. Although I've gotten more into the habit of if I do listen to music, it's usually like not the typical music I listen to, like not what I'd listen to mm-hmm. if I was like driving or something. Like I'll listen to more like instrumental, like no vocals kind of thing. What about, do you yeah, do that just like, or do you like just listen to whatever? So it depends. I think if I'm doing something where I have to like, I don't know, I'm writing a product brief or something, it'll be like something li- like what you, you mentioned, like instrumental, like really chill. Yeah. But if I'm like prototyping something really complicated, I actually love podcasts. I just like listen to oh, people talk about absolute nonsense and it's great. Like mostly comedy <laughs> podcasts. I love um, I love Team Coco's podcast. They're awesome. Oh, There's yeah. a bunch of comedians just like talking about absolute uh, garbage, which is great. Oh, no offense to them. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> but I find like it, it easier for me to hear voices when I'm doing something complicated. It reminds me of, you know, an open office environment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, yeah. I find any, I find I can't do podcasts when I'm working like at all. Um, mm-hmm. I used to. I remember like when I was first working. I, was, I would always listen to, do you remember like Dignation? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you ever yeah. listen to that? Um, I did, yeah. I used to listen to that when I like when I was first starting out. But now I just, I can't, I find it too distracting to listen to people talking while I'm trying to do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just thought about that this morning when I was, I, uh, I have this shortcut that detects my emotion when I enter the room and starts playing some like gentle uh, oh, nice. guitar music. Yeah, yeah. But then I, I usually just like turn it off because, well, the first thing in the morning I've, I've got meetings, right? So it's like, yeah. oh, okay, well, that, that was short-lived. So. <laughs> <laughs> you need to have it set up so it like comes back on after the meeting ends. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I can't figure that out though. Like you can't, you can't create, a sh- you can't run a shortcut based on a calendar event. At least I can't figure out how to do it. Have, well, have you figured that out? So one way you could, there is an app, um, there's a Mac app called Camera Usage. And it detects whether your camera is in use or not. And then you can send oh. a, like a webhook based on um, whether your camera is on or off. And so if you, oh. you could basically then trigger it so that when your camera goes back off, that essentially means your meeting may be over um, unless you turn it off while you're meeting. But um, yeah, it will then, uh, you can trigger it to do something like HomeKit or like whatever you want. Oh, wait, wait, but so, but, but by camera on, you mean I have to press the switch on the camera to turn it on like my SLR? No, no, it detects like whether, whether you're sending a camera feed, um, like your Mac is detecting it. It's not your camera. Oh, like it'll actually detect gotcha, any of gotcha. your cameras. Like if you're using your, your built in, um, like MacBook camera or you're using an external one, it's just basically like if Mac OS de- de- like determines that you are sending a camera feed in some way. It'll trigger right. that webhook. Oh, yeah. Okay, I gotta check that out. I knew I was talking to the right nerd. Uh, 
<laughs> That's what I was doing for a while to like auto set on like all my lights and stuff or like change my, I, had a, I have a light outside my office that changes to red when I'm in a meeting. Um, oh. So like my wife and kids know that I'm in a call. Um, and it was all based on that. I mean, we have a few more security things now at Shopify, so I can't use that app anymore. But um, yeah. <laughs> if you've got a, a setup where you can, it's a great, it was a great one use that's wild man yeah okay all right i get we get a nerd out a bit more about that but yeah. let, let, let's get on with the episode <laughs> <laughs> um so last episode we we talked about i guess a very surface level discussion about designing in mobile native something that we're, we're both pretty passionate about and i thought uh we kind of left a few details off the table about mm-hmm. designing for mobile native so uh, today is part two, uh, where we're going to dive a bit deeper into uh, an area I call constraints and capabilities. Um, and, you know, some things to think about when you're designing for mobile native. Um, and, you know, when I think about uh, constraints, I don't know if you've heard this, but I can't help but remember that really old urban legend about Ernest Hemingway and uh, how someone challenged him to write a story with characters and a plot uh, and all that stuff. In just six words. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard that urban legend before? Oh, no, I don't think I have. That sounds really interesting now. Okay, so let let me tell you. I'll tell you the story because it's only six words. Um, And remember, someone challenged Ernest Hemingway to write the story with characters and a plot and, and and the subplot. And here's the story. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. That's the story. That's it. That's awesome, right? So, I, so it's nothing to do with mobile design, of course. No. But um, and I think like it, it's cliche of me to say because like I think when you have sizable constraints, um, it, it often has that effect of making you think about a solution in a way that you never thought you would yeah. when you started. Yeah. And I think like at least for me, I think designing for mobile, um, it constrains designers in in probably the most powerful way, which is limiting the, the visual canvas that you have to yeah. you know to execute on. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. Like I I think I've had designers disagree with me before on that because they they think of that as less of a constraint, more of a lens. I, I don't know. Would you agree with that? That that the actual size is the constraint, or is it something else that we're thinking of? I I think it is. Like, I mean, I guess it's not fully size specific it's also the 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 mm. form too like the the medium mm. right that you're there's kind of a constraint around even like the ability to do interactions in a mobile space right like you think about desktop you've got a very precise mouse interaction mm-hmm. um yeah. on mobile it's not as precise cuz it's your finger so there's kind of a constraint there too around like how easy it is to select um, options on a screen. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. that also, I guess you could also argue that that's a lens as well, but I think it actually like constrains the level of interaction you can provide um, in the view at one time. Like you, you have to, you have to break things down into stages um, or steps yes. within a mobile flow more than you necessarily have to in a desktop one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And, and now that I'm thinking about, you, you just mentioned stages. It just makes me think about uh, checkouts, right? Yeah. Um, and do you remember back in the day? Uh, I mean, when we all like shopped online on desktop, um, there was this trend of 
uh, checkouts being in accordions. So you know, oh, yeah. there'd be like one section where it's like, oh, fill in your address. And then the next accordion you would pop open and then you'd, you'd do your sh- uh, billing address or something, right? Yep. Um, and then, then on mobile, when mobile became more prevalent, it was like one screen for one uh, yeah. part of that accordion, right? Right. Like, and I wonder which one came first because you're talking about breaking things down. Like I, I can't remember how that worked. Like, did was it the accordions on desktop that came first, or was it like designing for mobile that influenced it the other way around? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember either. That's actually a really good question. We should go back and dive into that. Yeah, there's. It's been interesting to see how many different explorations or like directions have come out of like checkout systems, and because it's it's such an important stage of the process for like a, a shopping mm-hmm. cart experience. So it's it's interesting to see especially in the early days of it, like how many different directions people went to come up with the best solution. Mm. And mobile, yeah. yeah, and mobile absolutely like influenced back and forth, right? Like you'd see something be done differently on des- on mobile and then you'd like see a similar pattern brought to desktop. Um, so they were kind of like informing each other at times. Um, yeah, yeah. It's almost that, that prevalence of mobile first thinking that yeah. that really changed the way that we think about desktop design. I think we talked about this last time where we, I think we we're postulating that like um, thinking about mobile, um, even if you're not going to build something that's mobile native, really changes the way that you think about the product itself, right? Yeah. And its simplicity and, and and how you're communicating things. Yeah, and I think that still comes back to like a level of um, working within a constraint um, yes. for mobile. Like there are just things that you can't do the same way. And and like vice versa, there are things that you can do on mobile that you just can't do on desktop. I think like I, I keep thinking back to this time before the long press became in vogue. Um and you know, as as a new mobile designer thinking, oh, I I, I don't I don't think I need a hover state for this anymore, right? right. Um and, and I think that's an example of like less of a constraint, but but more almost more freeing in a way where the UI becomes a little bit simpler and because the user user expectations around like performance on mobile are are much higher like when you tap something you almost expect something to happen immediately right right. and um i I don't know about you like i don't i i mean unless i'm thinking about material design i don't do a lot of like hover states or or touch states when i yeah when i tap on something um i don't know am i thinking about that wrong no i think there's a different um there's a different affordance for for what is interactive and what isn't on mobile compared to desktop. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think it comes down to like the user behaviors too. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's partly the input, like the mouse versus finger, but it's also partly like how those platforms have been created and and sort of the level of consistency that Apple and Google have provided to mobile devices that like is very lacking in desktop web apps, um, mm-hmm. which is like kind of deteriorate, deteriorated the experience for users. Like if you think about how um, we've all experienced like a bad web app where you click on something, it takes you to what looks like a new screen, but you don't realize in the background they just like dynamically loaded it. So if you hit back on your browser, you're actually like jumping to like some other step, <laughs> like three or four right. back, right? Like you're like, wait, I wanted to go back one step. Why did it take me back multiple? It's like, well, you didn't yeah. realize we actually like dynamically loaded that view and we didn't preserve right. the like back state, right? Like 
yes, you can do that well. Like there's a lot of web apps that do that really well and don't cause that problem. But there are so many bad ones out there that have created that experience that like, I feel like there's actually this like level of uh, subconscious fear with clicking on links in, on, in web apps where like, I think as designers, we've just gotten used to that and we're like, oh, we have to make it really obvious, really clear that this is something you can click on. Or like, if you click on this, what's going to happen? Like, so we, you start seeing like icons for like, this is going to open in a new tab, right? Because yeah, we're, yeah. we're very, we've become ingrained with like, we have to give them all the information they need to make the right choice uh, in a yeah. desktop. But then when you go to mobile, it's like so opposite behavior from that. Like, users don't spend any time not interacting with the screen, right? Like they're constantly scrolling, yeah. tapping, moving in and out levels super fast. Um, so the level of visual affordance needed for being like, this is something you can tap on is so much lower um, yeah. because users just do it. Like it's just innate behavior. Like you, you, you'll sit at your desktop and actually like read everything on the screen before you move your mouse but on your phone, you'll never not be touching it. Um, yeah. So it's it's so it's so interesting how those like play into the way that we like design then for those for those mm -hmm. things. Um, I, I find that part of it like I really agree. fascinating. Yeah, that that that's really true. And something that I've had to get used to a lot moving from designing for the web to designing for mobile, where hey, this is it's an expectation that you're going to be touching the screen uh, and like. It's good to touch, right? Like I think that's yeah. what we're trying to teach users is like it's good to touch and interact with the screen. That's what we want you to do. Um, and I think I had I recently had an exam uh, um, an issue at work where I was thinking about um, like a third tier button, like a third level button, right. with that doesn't look like a button. It looks like a, it's a plain button, right? Yep. Um, and on the web, you would typically what well, what would you do? You'd make it blue. You'd underline it, right? Stuff like that. Yep. Um, and we had this like long discussion about whether we needed to provide that affordance that it's actually, uh, you know, an interactive object. Mm -hmm. But uh, I made the argument that no, I, I think that some of the styling that the team wanted to apply to this was very web-like. Yeah. And I think like if we used if we wrote the content of the label appropriately, wouldn't really need that. So I, yeah, I, I can. How would I describe that? I suppose that's a capability versus a constraint. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Or it's yeah. like it's how it's how the system has been kind of crafted over time to, to yeah yeah like teach users how these things work. Um, yeah, like I think that's what's really interesting. Like that's what's really nice about having mobile be existing within these ecosystems that Google and Apple have created, where there's like a really good set of rules around how things work, like how navigation works, how you go back from whatever view you're on now. And because mm -hmm. it's really important on mobile, you always need a way to like go linear in a workflow because because of those constraints, going back to like the visual constraints, right? Like mobile yeah. has to move through a lot more steps, a lot more screens. So they had to really think about these navigation patterns and how you can get back out of something that you went into and because that's mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. so ingrained in the the platform, the that consistency exists from app to app, and users get used to it, and so they get used to like having less fear around what to tap on, and you just tap on anything, and then if it's not what you wanted, you just <laughs> go back. Um, yeah, it's easy, but on the web, that's not the case because it's not as consistent from experience to experience. You there's a wide range, the, yeah. so you're not always sure where you're going to go. 
this is true. Like I, every time I am in, I'm doing something like semi-important and I press the back button, I'm like <laughs> yeah. biting my nails. You don't I'm know like, what's oh, going to happen. Like, what am I going to see here? Exactly. Am I going to yeah. lose everything I just did? Is it going to go to a, like go back to Google or something? Like, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, like where am I? <laughs> Am I going to see that uh, that newsletter pop up when I hit back? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, we could we could do another whole episode about how bad um, the web has become with uh, all those um, accept these cookies, uh, sign up for the newsletter. Oh. You know, like and and how bad it's made mobile web too. Man. Yeah. Mobile web yeah. is just like a dumpster uh, fire now. I, I open up links from like Twitter <laughs> or something, and like I bet like ten percent of the screen is probably the thing that I want to see and. Everything yeah. else is all these other pop-ups and things. Oh, yeah, good God. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like, I think that that would be an episode that we'd have to mark as explicit because <laughs> I, I think I get so riled up about this modern web. Uh, anyway, that's, yeah. that's a different topic. topic. Um, let's come back to, to constraints because I think, like, let's imagine we're talking to students, design students who, you know, have never worked in mobile native before. Um, and I think like a lot of what I would say to them is similar to things that you would think about if you're designing for mobile web uh, or responsive web. Um, uh, in, just in terms of like layout, I think being, you know, we, we started off by talking about how the greatest constraint is, is the limitation of the canvas that we have to work with. And um, I think that oftentimes uh, what I tell my students is um, just because mobile is very focused on, you know, one screen at a time doesn't mean that you should um, lead your users through many screens to get something done. And I actually remember you giving me this feedback once when we were designing something together where I had designed something where there were like two different screens you had to get to, to do a thing. And then you're just like, well, why not just pull that all out onto one base view? Because scrolling is easier than tapping, and I and that was like this moment in my head where like, my brain exploded a bit. I'm like, yeah, that's true. People just want to scroll, like they just want to put their thumb at the bottom of the screen and push up. That's easier than having to go to the top of the screen or or uh, some other uh, tangent of the screen and have to tap into something. So um, that's something I, I tell students all the time: is you know try to limit the amount of like moving back and forth that you need to do. Uh, I don't know if you want to add to that, but I feel like when you when you were teaching me that, I was like, oh, yes, that makes a lot of sense. It's so obvious. Let's let the user be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a I think it's like a balance too. Like, because I sure. feel like I've actually given the advice the opposite way around too, where it's like, why don't we break this down into multiple steps? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to like figure out if there's some more principle around when one is stronger than the other. Um, like I think the way that I, I've thought about it a lot more lately is that you kind of want to start from a screen that has like, it, it, like let's, let's take something like pretty, pretty large and, and complex that you're wanting to show to a user. Like I think mm -hmm. what I would do to bring that to mobile is start with, a longer view, like like don't shy away from yeah, making the view a little bit longer, um, making it scroll because users like scrolling and like it's it's very easy and natural. But then like as you get into what you should do with that main view is really like focus more on the like the summary of that experience, like what is going on here, um, and and kind of give 
give like small entry points into further focus areas, if that makes mm. sense. Mm-hmm. Like you start with yeah. like, here's everything. You can scroll it. There's a lot to look at. But we're not going to like overwhelm you with just every possible interaction within each of those sections. Um, like mm-hmm. let's say it's like a very section type of experience. And then once from there, then don't shy away from like leading um, users into more focused views. Like you, you go mm-hmm. from one of those sections into a modal screen or a full screen where you then do a lot more complex interaction, like filling out a form or um, setting a bunch of settings or something like that, and then coming back out mm-hmm. to the root and going back down. Like it's kind of, I guess that's kind of um, describing a little bit of like the classic settings UI that you see in like iOS or or, yes. or Material or Google is like, here's a list of everything. We've given you like little, um, we've given you like a small summary of each setting too. Like I think they both do a good job of here's the setting, but also here's like some some tidbit about that setting that you've like previously set, like whether your Wi-Fi is on or not. Like that's that's shown at mm-hmm. the top level. But then as you want to do more with that thing, you go one level deep to do more complex interactions versus yeah. trying to fit all of that complexity onto the main screen which is just going right. to get more overwhelming. So that's where I think that idea of like um, progressive disclosure comes into play really well in mobile. And we see that on web too. Like web does a good job. A lot of good web apps do a good job of progressive disclosure as well. But those are usually more of like an inline progressive disclosure. Whereas I think mobile going to a new view where you can focus is, is more beneficial because you have that ability to kind of focus and like look at those specific details as opposed to trying to fit it all into one big experience right now i like the example you brought up of of setting the settings app like that i think that's a quintessential means by which does uh people most people experience um uh, a hierarchy right on, on yeah. especially on ios like that's where you spend most of your time experiencing how information is broken up into uh different areas and you tap into it and then there's more more power and then the, the on the other end of that spectrum i think is an app like um like apple maps right, right. where it's it's almost this seamless single experience. Um, although, I mean, I imagine that they, they might have gone through different iterations where like, oh, there is a separate screen where you perform other types of tasks. Right. But um, it, this is almost, yeah, like I said, the other side of that spectrum where it's it's a very powerful multifaceted experience on one, almost one seemingly single surface, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, it, it's difficult to describe, but I think when I first experienced Apple Maps and you know how they use the bottom sheet, um, it was just a complete uh, 180 for me in terms of how I looked at apps. Like how can you um, build so much complexity into a single surface without making it overwhelming? Yeah, I love, I love that layered approach that they use there with Apple Maps, like that there's that bottom layer, the map itself, and then you've got the sheet on top of it that can also do a lot of complexity or like take you through different experiences. Um, it's really, it's really interesting to look at it in more detail. Um, let, let's move on to some other constraints. I think like, um, you know, something I think about a lot is um, in the early days of, of the web, um, we were very conscious of the fact that, you know, we had to like crunch images down, right. To like a, a small size so that yeah. they, they wouldn't be like super slow to load. But here we are in 2022 and we have like pro res displays on our iPhone 13s. And right. there's this expectation yeah. that, you know, images that you load have to be of like a certain quality. So the constraint I'm talking about yeah. here is that like that image is going to take longer to load. And, you know, I think the constraint is right. around 
communicating that something is loading without making it feel slow, right? Um, I've never, yeah. like, I, 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 I'm not a developer, so I don't know how um, a lot of like image loading works in the background, but I could imagine that being a constraint mm-hmm. to consider. Like, well, how do you communicate this loading without it feeling like, you know, a real drag, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's where, I mean, that's where you see some of the benefits of like a native app, right? Where some of that stuff, depending on how you build it, right? Like a lot of apps will just embed those images right into the uh, original download of the app. Mm-hmm. So like the app might take a bit to install for the first time, but then once you start using it, those assets are just there. Yeah. And you're not waiting for loading at that point. But if you're using more of like a dynamic system where you're you're grabbing that information from a server and having to load it then, like, yeah, then you need to ensure that that those loading states are accounted for. And and the constraint more specifically to mobile, I think, is the fact that your your internet connection is wildly different from the any time you're using your phone, right? Like mm-hmm. unless you're at home, you're gonna experience like different levels of speed wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, especially as you get into like like areas where the connection is really poor. Um, and that's a constraint that I think mobile has to account for more than desktop typically does. Like, yes, mm-hmm. there are varying internet speeds on desktop machines, but it's usually consistent throughout the entire experience. Yeah. Um, whereas a mobile user is going to experience different levels of connectivity um, without, within, the, within the entire time they're experiencing your product potentially, right? Yeah, so right. accounting for that to change in the middle of the experience is, is important. Yeah. I, I love how YouTube deals with this, where like in a low mm-hmm. connect, sorry, in a, in a slow connection sort of state, um, it'll still load the video just in like the worst right. possible like quality, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. but it, it's so optimized for speed and so uh, uh, what's the word for it? It it takes into account what you're just describing, where yeah, you're yeah. gonna come into into places where. Like maybe you're in, in an airport and the airport Wi-Fi is spotty in like certain lounges. Like uh, I love how it just prioritizes you getting to the video because of course that results in you watching more ads. So that makes a lot of complete <laughs> sense to me. Yeah. I mean, it's also, but it's also, it's also a better experience. Like I would rather watch a video at a lower quality than have to continually like have it pause and wait for it to buffer. Like yeah. those were the original video days, right? Like where it was always waiting for it to buffer. Mm-hmm. Like you would pause it, like you'd have enough stops that you'd be like, okay, I'm just going to pause it, wait for it to like really get ahead and then I'll start playing again. Mm-hmm. But I love that like with YouTube now, like you don't have to do that. You're just like, oh, I'll just watch it slightly lower quality. Like that's fine. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, I, you know, I was just like thinking a bit more about um, I, that a primary constraint of size and I'm trying to think of a really great example of how a mobile app has really played into that constraint. I'm just trying to think really hard about an example right now. I'm just like going to go through my phone to think of something. <laughs> that, that deals with that constraint size? Yeah. Like how, does, like, how, like, do they use it? Like, does an app use it to its full benefit? Like, uh, rather, not a benefit, mm. but does it does it change that constraint into like a, a capability? Right. I'm just trying to think of what that Ooh. an example of that might be. I mean, the, the cameras kind of do that, right? Like cameras, camera apps for the longest time have always been like you really get a pretty good picture of what you're seeing and then what the image that you're taking is going to result in, right? Right. 
like you see the full size of it at at both stages. Mm-hmm. Like even though the screen is, even though technically the layout is constrained in size, they're not sacrificing that at any way because you're seeing the outcome before you take the photo. Right. Yeah. Um, and I and it's funny because actually as phones have gotten taller, we now actually see more UI above and below the camera view because that constraint is no longer as constrained as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Like now you get to see the full photo and you get another like 30% of your screen to show controls. True. Whereas like the original iPhones and stuff, like that aspect ratio is really just the photo. So they were mm-hmm. taking full advantage of the screen size and showing you the the full size of the image you're taking before you take it. Um, but now we... Like we've almost gotten to the point of like it's not a constraint anymore. It's actually like there's room for lots of things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the example you're looking for. <laughs> it, it is. Sorry, you don't know. I was just. I would. Sorry, man. I was just like looking at my phone. As I... <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I I agree with that. That's true. I think like camera UI has evolved so much to to really allow you to focus on like the framing aspect. I think the most difficult parts yeah. of capturing an image, right? Um, I right. think that's what it's been allowed us to do is like um, really take up as much of the screen as possible so that you could align it to your grid and like understand where your subject is, right? Yeah, which like on the flip side, if you were to imagine um, taking a photo with your desktop computer mm-hmm. screen, how like getting more screen real estate is actually not helpful. That's true. Yeah. Like it'd be, you would it'd be so awkward to frame a photo with a giant desktop screen. It even well it's even true with iPad really. <laughs> like taking photos on an iPad even though it's possible feels weird. Like it feels wrong because it feels like there's too much screen. But I love um, to see it. And that's I love really, people. I love seeing people. I know. Do it. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> so and there's apps that have tried to like solve that. Like I don't know if you've ever used that photo app called is it Halide? Oh, uh, Halide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. But um They've actually, they did a, I remember seeing their blog post about how they like designed their camera app for iPad and how they put certain controls like on the sides of the screen because it's where your thumbs are all the time when you're taking yeah. a photo. I think they even maybe constrained the camera view a bit more than maybe iOS does by default, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. But like <clears throat> that idea of opening up the screen size is not actually helping in that scenario. Right. Like, yeah. Whereas, whereas, like in a lot of other cases, it is helping. Like iPad, you can show more. The desktop, you can show more. But when it comes to camera, like photo taking, showing more is not an advantage. Right. Showing less is actually more the advantage because it allows you to frame and get get closer to the subject and um, whatever you need to do. Right? It, like it actually improves the experience. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Um, I'm just I'm just gonna open Halide right now. Um, you have it on your iPad or or just on um, your phone? Oh, just on my phone. But you're right. It actually it does constrain the image a bit more um, than the standard uh, camera app, and that's because there's like there are more controls, but they're all very mm-hmm. uh, you know they're all the, of course they're at the very bottom of the screen and very comedic, very thumb centric centric in terms of its yeah. UI. Um, yeah, I'm gonna play around with this. I, I every time I open Halide, I'm a little intimidated by it. So I'm like, oh, do, yeah. do I end up using There's it? There's a lot going on. There's a yeah. lot, yeah. But I love the controls. Like it's so fluid. Yeah. Um, and everything is really conveniently placed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really great example. Well great example. Um, I think there are. I mean, we we've been talking about constraints, and I think like 
spent a bit more time thinking about that than, than I, I imagine we would. But um, let's talk a bit more about capabilities because I think like that's something that mm. a lot of people aren't used to designing for. So right. when I'm talking about capabilities, I'm talking about leveraging device resources like the cameras we've talked yeah. about already, the GPS, um, you know, being able to uh, support Apple Pencil and like touch devices like yeah. that. I think there's like some, you know, if you're wondering what John and I are talking about, I think there are some some really good examples that you're probably using already that we don't think about as like we take for granted as being like very native resources that that we love. So, for example, when you're using your banking app and being able to like seamlessly switch to the camera to scan your check and deposit it on the fly. Um, yeah. another example that I love is in the notes app, which I use every day, you know, that really deep pe- Apple pencil integration. So I can switch mm-hmm. right away to using my pencil and just like do a really quick sketch or, or, or hand drawn note. Uh, and of course, dick document scanning right inside of notes, yeah. like a great example document of like that yeah. high level of hardware software integration. Um, I know you had a few more John that, uh, we have on this list that I actually have never seen before. Like, uh, you want to yeah. talk through yours? <clears throat> So Bricket, Bricket is an app that I just found like this week. Um, and it's wild. It's a, it's an app where you literally, you take a, like a pile of Lego and you just like <laughs> use the app and it, you put the like camera over it uh-huh. and it just scans the entire pile of Lego. Okay. And, like with its AI and everything and then figures out what you can build with that pile. Like what? it will then like recommend all these different things that you can build with just those bricks that are in or that the camera was able to detect. So That's it literally wild. like detects every size and everything in this pile of Lego and then just gives you instructions for like, hey, you can build a tiger with this Lego here. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Crazy. Like how awesome is that? So what what, yeah, like, what do you wild. see when you when you scan it? Like does it give you a catalog of stuff? Of like different yeah, models. Yeah, so it looks like the UI is kind of like a camera. Like you okay. see a camera, but then it does this like wild thing where it like kind of starts like highlighting bricks. Like you yeah. can sort of see it animate. Right. And then once it's done doing its scan, it then just like pops up a list of um, potential things you can build, and then like links you to or like you tap on one and it takes you into kind of like the traditional Lego step by step build build flow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. man, I'm, I'm downloading this yeah. because like, I think every, I know. everybody with a kid has a giant bucket of Lego kicking around, right? Right, but- <laughs> right. Such a, such, a cool, such a cool idea and like thing they're solving with that. Okay. Um, some other ones that come to mind, I think like there's lots of great apps now that are doing the AR stuff that's pretty yeah. interesting. Like mm-hmm. even the Apple Store is a basic example of that. Like you go there, you want to you wanna look at what the new MacBook Air looks like or... Or maybe, well, more practically speaking, probably like an iMac or something, and then actually be able to see what it looks like on your desk. Like, oh. will this fit here? Or how does, like, so you can actually, like, pop up the AR, like, model of that device and then look at it in context of what you're, where you're going to put it. I mean, furniture right. apps, there's some great furniture apps that do that too, right? Like, being able to see where the couch is yep. in your room um, is a great, great benefit. It's like, that's something only a, a phone can accomplish with those hardware. True. Yeah. I, um, uh, I, is the, the Apple store one, is that like for all products or are they like testing it with like certain products? Um, I've seen it. I was just looking at this last night and I, I mean, I saw it for the new MacBook air. Um, let me just see if it's there for like, like the studio display might be in there. If you go to 
select one. It's like kind of with the gallery. Yeah, like the the iMac, I can pull it up in AR and then just like drop an iMac on my desk and oh see what God. it looks like. Oh, this is just so pretty cool, fun. man. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know about this. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, I'll check that out. It's going to be like more uh, explanations to my wife as to why I keep spending money at the Apple store. Uh, <laughs> man, <yeah. laughs> oh, and even the even the like ruler app, do you use the ruler app much? I do, I do, yeah. I've actually like gotten the habit of using that more and it's like so good at scanning oh. like or like giving you like like yeah. widths and dimensions on stuff. Like it's I can't believe I missed great. that. Yeah, that that's a, I know. that's wild. That's a good and one. I, what I love about that app, and uh, I'm just geeking out here, but like I love the little haptic that plays when you hit oh, a yeah. corner or or like a, an edge. That's nuts. Yeah, I, I love that. And yeah. It's just like just just enough for me to feel like I'm being precise about it, right? It's, oh, it's a great interaction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then probably my favorite one for like hardware spe- like specific capabilities is this app called Golf Shot. I'm like definitely a golf nerd, and um. I've been using this app for a long time and they it's it's been pretty solid like the UI is okay but it's always been pretty good at um if you use it on your phone you can use it to like track your shots and you can see like how far out it has the GPS kind of like can determine how far out you are from the hole yeah. like when you're coming you can be like oh you're 100 yards it'll tell you that distance which is awesome mm-hmm. but this past year about a year ago they they have an Apple Watch app too and they added this capability where They've determined how to. They can tell when, if you're wearing your watch on your on your wrist while you're playing, mm-hmm. they can determine when you actually perform a swing. Um, so, like based on the momentum, the like they can track that, and they basically like determine, okay, you've just made a swing. And then what they do is they like initiate at that moment their like automatic shot track tracking. So basically, you take a swing at like at the tee box. And then once you get up to your ball, however far that went, it's tracking that distance from the tee box to where you ended up. And then if you take another swing, it'll then assume like, okay, now that's your next shot. So then it'll take the distance between your first shot and your second shot. And it'll be like, that was your, that's how far you hit that first ball. What? Um, And then (laughs) on that next one, it'll do it again. So it'll just like, every time you take a swing, it'll like stop the last track, save that, and then start a new one. And like, and then you can go back into your phone and literally see like every one of your shots. This is wild. Um, like this like overhead overhead map of like every distance, and it and it also tries to assume which club you're using because you can enter in like all your club distances, <laughs> and so it'll be like, oh, that was your driver because it went like that far, or like this was your six iron because you hit it x far. Wait, wait. So um, it's taking the, the distance that you hit and then trying to guess yeah. which club that you use to do it, and is it right? Well, it well actually it does it at first. Like it assumes okay. like okay, you're starting off this hole, you're probably using a driver, so that's what they'll assume. And if you if you decided to use something else, you can while you're like walking up to your ball, I've done this a million times, you can just kind of use the crown on your watch to like mm-hmm. switch to a different one because if it's <laughs> like oh, we we thought you're using driver, but you're like, "Oh, I actually used my 4 iron." Then you just like scroll the 4 iron and then it's like, "Okay, we'll save that as the the club that you used." And then you can go in and see like all your data. Yeah, of like how far you're hitting all your clubs and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's great. It's such yeah. a great use of, like, especially the watch, right? Like the capabilities of being able to detect when you've made a swing. Yeah, um, can, is super. Can you cool. imagine the the golf super nerd that made this thing? Like it. That's right. that sounds amazing. Like, and I lo- I love yeah. how only a golfer would understand <laughs> like 
um, what sort of experience you could leverage for an Apple Watch like that, yeah. right? Like, it, it, yeah. that's pretty remarkable. Totally. I've never heard of that, but it sounds pretty, it sounds expensive too. Is that an expensive app? No, I think they just, they do like a yearly subscription, I think. It's not that much. Okay. I think it's like, I don't know, 40 bucks or something for the year. Wow. I don't know. That's just, yeah, it's phenomenal. Okay, I, I, I don't golf, Yeah, but I'll check it out. <laughs> but yeah. now you want to. <laughs> I do, I kind of do, yeah. <laughs> oh, Man, so... Um, we went through like this, this was actually really fun. Like, I think we should, we should do more of this. Um, I, I love yeah. talking about all the app experiences that I'm, I'm really passionate about because, um, mm-hmm. um, we, we were just talking about like, um, uh, the Apple store AR experiences and I actually quite love shopping for glasses. So like the Warby Parker app is, is pretty, Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty decent, yeah, like, you know, p- putting it yeah. on your face. So yeah, anyway, we could, we could talk more yeah. about that. Uh, we were going to talk about tablets and, Ultrabooks and Apple Watch and Apple TV. Let's uh, let's save it for next time. Like I feel like uh, yeah, there's a lot to go into there. I think we covered some really fun stuff today. Love so that. I hope that uh, we've inspired you to think about how you could be like prototyping a native uh, mobile app experience, especially with some of the capabilities we've been talking about. But if you have some like really crazy examples or great examples of how native apps have leveraged native capabilities for like really wild and uh, creative purposes, send it our way. We'd love to hear it on Twitter. Um, and uh, we love playing with different apps. We're doing it all the time. So we'd love to yeah. check out your list. Yeah. I will download anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words uh, on yeah, your gravestone. Well, John, I I will, that, I guess. Yeah. John Rundle downloaded everything. I will download anything. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here, John. I'll see you next time, man. (laughs) All right, you too. The Fidelity Podcast is hosted and produced by John Rundle and Bill Chung. Visual brand design by Amy Devereaux. Rate, review, and subscribe to Fidelity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.